Good morning and welcome to Calvary. As we jump right into the middle of the, our journey through the scriptures, we're taking a walk from beginning to end. And the part of the story that we find ourselves in today, introduced by uh, the, the character that you just saw, puts us right at the place, at the point of Jesus' uh, time on this earth, when he is just entering the last week of his life here. The fact that he would, at this point in the next few days, he's going to uh, go in majesty on a donkey into Jerusalem. He's going to eventually be arrested and then betrayed and then crucified and then risen again. All this is about to happen, and it, it starts with the story, uh, one of the stories that you've heard today. And we're going over the next three weeks, we're going to look at, at, at three different people who interacted with Jesus during this last week. And during this interaction, what, what, what they saw and what they saw in him and how that helped them to understand better who he was and why he was, why he was here. And they're all going to ask the question, a question that was actually posed by Jesus several months before to his disciples. A question that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. In fact, if you read the story this week, chapter number 25, that conversation that he had with his disciples kind of launches that whole chapter. Now we're going to look at it from the, the, the passage in Matthew, and, and it's Matthew chapter number 16. And, and this is how we introduce it today. It, it starts this way. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we have just re restated the question that you asked couple thousand years ago, to a group of followers, and, and it, I believe, would change their lives. And Father, I think the power within those words has the ability to change the lives that are in this room today. So Lord, I pray that you open our hearts to what you want us to hear today. You open this passage to us, maybe in a way like never before. And maybe kind of like Bartimaeus, who we just heard about, maybe we go away from here seeing or seeing more clearly than we did when we came in. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the question we're going to ask over the next three weeks is, who do you say I am? And we're talking about a question that I honestly believe, uh, as these characters are going to talk about, this becomes one of the most important questions posed within the Scriptures. But arguably, I believe this becomes perhaps the most important question of all time for all of us to answer and to answer with some sort of clarity. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question that we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. So let's get real practical for a minute. You got that piece of paper with you? You got your pen? Let me challenge you to do something. So everybody get it out. Let me... If, if you brought one, just get your pen out, because I'd like you to do something. Listen to that question, and then write down the first answer that truly comes to your mind. Speaking Jesus, saying, who do you say I am? What's the first answer that comes to your mind? You don't have to shout it out. Just write it down. I want you to think about that. And I want you to take that answer as you're thinking about it and, and mull it over in your mind as we go through this, this next, these next several minutes. For some of you, as you're writing down, that might be based off a personal experience you've had with this one named Jesus, something that he's specifically done in your life. For some of you, I, I have a feeling that, that that answer would be 
good or bad, depending on the circumstances maybe you're in right now or you've had this week? You'd actually say, well, it depends on when you asked me that question. Uh, Some of you would give me the church answer, the Sunday school answer. The answer is always Jesus, right? We all know that, right? So you would give me that answer, and, and nothing wrong with that answer. I mean, that's something you've learned, something you've grown up with, some answers that, that you maybe have heard in church, and you know it's the right answer. Some of you may know what that means, and some of you may not. You just know it's the right answer. I, I guarantee you there will be some in this room where that answer would be a little less sure, a little, well, I don't know. Maybe you care, maybe you don't, but you're not really sure what you would put down. And I bet there's some in the room that that would be kind of a doubtful answer, kind of a skeptical. I haven't really seen him, so I don't really know what I think or if I even think too much about him. But I want you to think about that answer. Who do you say I am as posed by Jesus himself? As we go through today, next Sunday, and into Easter, I hope that we, we grapple with this question, and maybe even before you leave today, you have, have a better answer for, for that particular question. So here's from this passage that we're going to look at, Matthew 16. There's, a, there's three things I want us to kind of get about this passage that I think will help us as we grapple with this question over the next couple of weeks. Let me start this way, and we're just going to be real, real practical and, and logical this morning. Let's talk about the setting, the atmosphere in which this was spoken. All these words, where were they, what was happening when Jesus said these questions? So let's go back, and, and you, 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 if you know anything about the scriptures in Jesus or you've heard anything about it, Jesus was, was just famous for and just great at taking uh, situations, whether they're events or people or traditions or characters, and using those to make his point, using those to help you understand. He would paint these, these living uh, object lessons in front of people so that they could understand it. And most of us get that. We're, we're uh, visually oriented people. We like to see it, all right? So w- understand, when Jesus did something, there was always a reason, and, and I think this particular passage just points that out in a huge way. Jesus asked the question, and look where it says in the scriptures. He was at a place called Caesarea Philippi. I'm sure none of you probably have, anybody visited Caesarea Philippi recently? Okay, probably none of you in a recent day. So it's not like something on our tourist calendar, but it was a very specific place at this time. According to the map of the Holy Land, this this Caesarea Philippi, uh, the way that we understand from these guys, was really not on the way to anything. If you look on this map, if you were to look on a map of of the Holy Land, you have the Galilee where Jesus spent most of his time. You have Jerusalem down here. And then about 25 miles north of Galilee is this place called Caesarea Philippi. It was on the northern edge of the Israel's, uh, what they would call their country. It was on the northern edge of their borders, their boundaries, all right? So we got 25 miles north, and, and so it wasn't really on the way to anything. It'd be like saying, I want to go from Springfield to St. Louis by way of Bloomington, okay? It just doesn't, for those, see, some of you are going, that doesn't, you're right, it doesn't make, you could do it, but why, right? It doesn't really on the way, it's, it's, so understand, Jesus going here did this deliberately. There was not just an accident that he ended up in Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't like we're just in the neighborhood, right? This is a place that they had to go to on purpose to get to where they are. Now, it's on the edge of their borders. It's at the 
the foot of Mount Hermon where the Jordan River, which you, if you know the Bible, you've heard about. It starts up there. The, the springs come that feed the Jordan River. So it's a very famous place. And, and it's, but as you see from the pictures, this is an artist's rendering of what it would have possibly looked like based on the archaeological digs. This is kind of what they think it would have looked like. And you'll notice several buildings because this was a famous place of worship. But it was famous for not its worship of God, but its worship of many of many false deities and false gods of all kinds. And, and there was, it, there's an interesting why it's called Caesarea Philippi. It was based on a tribute to two people. If you catch from the name, a guy named Caesar. Does that sound familiar? All right. There was a temple. One of those temples was a temple to Caesar. So they worshiped Caesar here. And then the guy who kind of put this town together at this point in, in history was, was Herod the Great's son named Philip. Caesarea Philippi, right? So that's why we get the name. So we understand that this was a place of worship, but also there was a, a shepherd god called Pan, and his, his worship center was here at Caesarea Philippi. In fact, and if you look at this next, this next picture on the screen, this is today Caesarea Philippi, the grotto of Pan, and this is what would be called the Gates of Hades. And in this particular place at Caesarea Philippi, there was a, a fissure, a, a hole in the ground, if you would. And they would actually cast people and, and live sacrifices in this hole because to them, they, they believed legendary tell, uh, in a legendary fashion that this was the gate to the underworld. This was how you got to, this is where death came from. This is where you go to in death. The gates of, of death or the gates of Hades, the gates of the realm of the dead. And so this was a place of of, of, of evil, of uh, all kinds of the wicked, anything that you would think of a wickedness, not to mention all of the, the idolatry, that's Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus, by purpose, by deliberation, took his disciples to this particular place. Uh, to be honest, most respectable Jews wouldn't even go to this place. If you were a devout Jew, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be caught dead here. This was not a place that you're walking through because, you, because this was a place that would defied everything that they believed to be right and true. And what we find here is from this point on are about the last six months of Jesus' life here before the crucifixion and resurrection. So it's almost as if he starts this northern point, and from here he's going to begin his journey to Jerusalem, but he starts at this place called Caesarea Philippi. Why? Well, uh, probably a lot of answers, but let me just throw out a couple suggestions. One of the things he's going to tell us in this particular passage is he's going to contrast these false gods and these pagan deities and all this, and he's going to contrast them to himself, the one true God. He's going to say, guys, look, they have all of this and all of these things, but there is really only one God. And you're looking at it. He, he, he uses this as, a, as an object lesson of contrast between the, all the possibilities and the fact that there is only one God. Another thing that I think would be interesting is in, this, in this picture of where he's at is all these people were afraid of this place. This was, a, although they would come, it was a place of fear. It was a place of dread. It was a, the gates of hell, the gates of, of death. It was a place that, that this had power. And, and what Jesus is going to show them is this place, as scary as it looks, really has no power at all. And he's going to describe in a minute just how powerless the gates of Hades really are. And he's going to talk about, and, and he's, making the, he's making them see that this is a dark place, but God's bigger than this. God's bigger than any of these fears and anything that come with this, this legend. But here's another thing that I think is very interesting. Whenever you see Jesus do his ministry, he often would go to the darkest places. And he would bring light 
to dark people or to dark places that we would, we would stay away from. You find Jesus just diving into there because he was bringing light to darkness. He was bringing hope where there didn't seem to be any. So, don't, so whoever you are, whatever you've been through, wherever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you've experienced, Jesus likes to go right there and bring light to that place or bring light to where you find that you feel like you don't have any light anymore. And, and let's just, before we go any further, church, do you understand that's what we should be as well? Rather than just, just being in a place where we come with our flashlights and a little flashlight party in church, we need to be taking our light to the dark places of the world. That's what Jesus did. And he would go to those very darkest of places. So here's where it starts. We're at Caesarea Philippi. We're at this place that most Jews would not even find themselves in unless they had to. That's the first part. Now that's the setting. Let's talk about the questions themselves. He asks two questions. Actually, he's only asking one question but he asks it to two different people. He's asking the same question, but, but to direct it to two individual groups. First question is this, who do people say I am? He's looking at his, at his disciples, and as he's speaking to them, he says, okay, it's after about two and a half years of ministry here. I've been walking this world, this world doing my thing for about two and a half years. What, how would Joe Public describe me? Who do people say I am? Now, this isn't necessarily, he's not trying to get a, a public opinion poll, like, am I, am, am, am I high in the polls? Do, what do people like me? It, it, it wasn't that kind of an idea. He's trying to ask them, do people get it? In two and a half years of seeing me on this earth, what, what is it that they would, how would they describe me? What is it that they have learned about me or what they would know about me based on these couple things? And the answer is, based on what the disciples say, they most of the people still didn't quite understand who Jesus was. Now, they gave some interesting answers. Who do people say I am? Well, they said you're, you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, those are all, if, if you're not familiar with Scripture, you haven't been with us the story, let me just kind of throw out. Those are all very interesting, unique characters from the history of the Scriptures. All prophets, all legendary in, in their own way, but also very powerful. They were powerful prophets, but there's one thing about all of them that's in common. They're all dead. All three of those mentioned by name were all dead. So either the people are thinking, well, Jesus, you're kind of like an old dead prophet, which means, you know, you're interesting, but not really relevant to me. Does that make sense? Does that sound familiar? This whole thing about who is Jesus, well, he's a guy 2,000 years ago. That's pretty cool, but he really doesn't mean much to me. That's kind of how they put Jesus, you're John the Baptist. or Eli They're all somewhere in a grave. So they were interesting. They had a lot to say, and maybe there's some supernatural thing here, but truthfully, it's not really too much that bothers me. That's the, that was the attitude of the general public. That's who the people have been watching him, and many have been following him, and, but that's how the disciples would describe how the people would describe Jesus. But then Jesus asks a second question. So he turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say I am? Same question, totally different perspective. If you've been in our life groups recently, we, we, we do a thing at the beginning called uh, kind of group guidelines kind of help us as we go through this discussion. And one of the things that always grabs me in there, there's a statement in there that says, we will use I statements. Now, if that makes, doesn't make sense to you, let me describe it. It's pretty easy to sit in a crowd and talk about what everybody is thinking. 
well, this is what, this is what they said. Who's the famous they, right? The, yeah, everybody talks about that. They said this, and we think this. That's kind of easy to say. It may even be controversial, but as long as you can put it off, on, you're not the only one that thinks that there's a lot of other people that say it. That's kind of easy. But when you say, but I think, I believe, this is what I'm feeling, suddenly now, whoom, the spotlight's on you, and now what you're saying is from you. And that's what Jesus did. He said, okay, guys, here's what the world is thinking. This is what the people are saying. This is, the, you know, I'm, dead. I'm like an old, dead, non-relevant prophet. But let's change this. Who do you say I am? Make this personal. Who am I to you? And with that question, Jesus then launches into this, this whole understanding about what we have or what he is and what we need to know about him, which leads me to the third part, and that is simply the answer. All right, so we talked about the setting. This is where they're at. They're at Caesarea Philippi, this, this, uh, this montage of false, pro, false teaching. They ask the question, who do you say I am? And now the, the answer comes in a very specific form. Peter steps up and says it, and whether he was speaking just for himself or he was speaking kind of as a spokesman for the whole group, which is very possible, but listen to his words. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Understand that what, what we're saying here is there are two questions, but only one real answer. And, and, and this one question really has only one correct answer. It wasn't like a, a multiple choice, you know, D, all of the above. It wasn't Jesus and all of the things on the hill of Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't Jesus and all the other teachers. This is, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Makes all the difference in the world. He, but also notice something. He didn't come up with this on his own. Look what Jesus said to him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. What was, why did you have to throw in dad's name in there? Because what he's pointing out is, Simon, you're just a, you're just a normal guy. Simon, you're, you're, we know your dad. Your, your last name's Jonah, right? That's basically what he's saying. You're Simon, son of Jonah. You're just a guy that we all know, but what you said was above your pay grade. What you said was something you couldn't come up with being the son of Jonah. That wasn't something that you figured it out. It wasn't something that you were taught by your dad. It couldn't be something that you learned without being, being revealed by a higher source. He says, that was, you're a natural guy, but that was a supernatural answer. You're just an ordinary dude, but that was an extraordinary answer. That was something that God gave you to understand. As I, as I read that phrase this week, that has become my prayer in so many ways for everyone sitting in this audience. Is, is I can say a lot, and, and you, can, you can figure certain things out. Some of you are pretty smart people. Some of you. <laughs> no, most of you. Okay. Okay, the vast majority, does that help? Are, are very, very smart people in the room. You, you get things. I, I understand that. But here's, here's what I want, I've been praying, is there are some things that you're not going to understand unless God says, this is truth. And if your heart is open to hear what God wants, that's what I've been praying is God open the hearts of people so they can see some things that are above their pay grade. So they can understand truth in a way that only you could reveal it to them. Because that's what Peter, God, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, somebody else gave this to you. But what was it that Peter said that was so important? Why was this such a, I mean, it was a simple sentence. 
what was it, 10 words? What, why was this such a big deal? Let, let's, let's break it down and talk about that. He said, first of all, you are the Messiah. Your version may say the Christ. It by, by definition means the anointed one. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with kind of the customs, anointing was, a, was a, still a big custom here, but specifically throughout the Old Testament. They would anoint certain people, and by anointing, literally by pouring oil over these people as a symbol of anointing. And there were was, there was several that did it, setting them aside for a specific purpose. But there were three specific groups that, that the Old Testament talks about, specifies as needing to be anointed for their job. There was the prophets were one of them, the messengers, those who gave forth God's word. They were to be anointed, which showed that God's approval was on them. Then we also, not only the the prophets, but then we have the priests, specifically the high priest, the one who would offer the sacrifice once a year. He was to be anointed by God in the sense that he was set apart. And then when a king came into place and a king was put on the throne, he was anointed as one who was given by God. What we have here is what Peter is saying is you are the Messiah, the anointed one. What the Jews have been looking forward to for all these years was someone who would be all three of those in one. Someone who would be a prophet, a priest, and a king who would have the anointing of God on his life who would be the Messiah, the coming one, the one that they had been looking for. Peter is saying, Jesus, that's, that's who you are. Now, from a lower story perspective, what the Israelites were looking for, what the Jews were looking for was a Messiah to come and, and get them out of the troubles they were in, to deliver them from, at this point, the Roman oppression, to get them away from that and to set them up as a kingdom again. That's what they were looking for. The Messiah was coming to physically to do this kingdom. From the upper story, we know that God has told us there's going to be a Messiah. But what he's going to do is he's going to bring a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom is going to change not only their lives, but eventually going to be the kingdom that takes that rules the world in, for, for eternity. And so God is saying, this is, that's the truth. Peter, you said it. I, I am the Messiah, the anointed one. But that's not all. He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. That phrase adds even more significance to everything Peter just said. Yes, you're the anointed one. You're the one that we've been looking for. But now he says, there's, there's, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's talk about that for a minute. In the, the literature, as it was written there, that's what you would call a parallelism. You have these, these two figures back to back, and, and they weren't just restating the same. The second one was actually emphasizing the first. So literally what he's saying is, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, because you are the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God sets Jesus in a whole different realm. The Messiah, they had other people anointed that had come, and David was anointed. You had prophets and priests, but now to have them all three together anointed, but the one that is anointed is the Son of the living God as a whole different. And what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you're starting to get it, dude. You're, You're seeing this two and a half years, and this is starting to make sense. That's exactly who Jesus claims that he is to be. Now, let me just clarify something. The term sons of God is not only used for Jesus in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you have angels were sometimes called sons of God. You have some of the, the people of Israel at one point were referred to as sons of God. 
There's even some times in Scripture when hu- the human race itself, since we're all created by God, is referred to in a generic sense as sons of God. And we know as God's people today, following Jesus, that we have this marvelous privilege to be children, to be sons of God. We, we understand that. But this, this termination of Jesus, of being the Son of God, was a whole different uh, description, something that completely set him apart. What he's doing, this title defines Jesus as more than just an anointed person. This is defining him, describing him as God himself. The Son of God means he is God the Son. He is God come in this, this form. Now, here's, here's some things we learned. Before Jesus was even born, listen to what the angel said to Mary. Listen to this. The angel answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born in you will be called what? The Son of God. So before he ever steps foot on this earth, he is referred to as the Son of God. At the age of 30, Jesus is beginning his ministry, and he goes to get baptized by John the Baptist. Listen to this. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven said, and so God the Father, speaking from heaven, says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So God is setting him apart as saying, This is my Son. This is, this is not just a, another uh, fantastic, anointed human being. This is my son. And what's interesting is the very next thing Jesus does after this baptism is he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and the devil tempts him. But listen to how the devil tries to trick Jesus. Listen to this. The tempter came to him, Matthew 4, and said, if you are the what? The son of God. And then he tempts him with, what is he saying? He's he's challenging his deity. He's saying, really, are you really the son of God? Because if you are, then you're going to be able to do some crazy, amazing things. So if you really are, let's test that. Let's let's challenge that. As as we move on, right at the, even in part of his ministry, the people understood what it it meant to be called the son of God. And and their excitement, listen to what some of the people, some of his, uh, the people in their confusion said. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, Jesus, Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And look at this next phrase, making himself equal with God. The term son of God, he was the anointed one, the son of the living God, the one who was God, the son, come into this world. And in fact, when he came to the end, his crucifixion, the implications of all of this being said, that many, though they heard it, they refused that that could even be the possibility. This one that we know from Nazareth or wherever, he can't be the son of God. They refused to accept it, and they used that as a reason for even his arrest that would lead to his crucifixion. Listen to what they said to Pilate in John 19. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Why? Because he claimed to be the son of God. And from then on, the the crowd in a frenzy says he's got to die. Crucify him because he's claiming to be God. See, when Peter says he's the Messiah, the Son of God, he he was stating that this was the truth of who Jesus really is. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a a, a great guy and someone to follow. He is the anointed one, the very God himself come into this world. And what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you got it right. And that's what I want to tell you. This what's so important about this truth is you've got to get this answer correct. 
this answer to be right is so important for each of us sitting here that we understand the, the ramifications and we understand the truth of what he's saying. In John chapter number 20, listen to what John says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He's talking about the miracles and the signs. And then this next verse, I want to encourage you, each month I encourage you to memorize a verse. This is the one I encourage you to memorize this month, John 20, 31. It says this, but these, these signs are written that you may believe, notice, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you read that verse with me? Our verse for memory, verse 31, it starts with the word but. Read it with me, please. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written. What, what are written? The, the miracles, the signs, the things that Jesus did that were so miraculous. Why, why are those things so important? Because they proved that Jesus was who Peter and who he said he was. He was the Son of God. Make sure you understand this. We talked about this some in our life group last week, that Jesus did incredible miracles. He healed and he did all these incredible things, but he didn't just do them to show off his power. He, didn't, he even didn't heal just to be a healer. Although the healings came from his, his heart of compassion, Jesus healed for this reason, to show that he was the Son of God. He did what he did. His miracles had a purpose. They were, had a meaning. And their meaning was to prove that he was who he was saying he was. Because Jesus could have said a lot of things, but to say, I am the son of God, requires some proof of identification. Wouldn't you think? We found out this year in our taxes that we had to go to New York. You now have to send in a copy of your, your driver's license. I mean, they want, they, they want because people could be using your name, and they're all, you have to prove who you are, right? To, for me to say I'm Steve Switzer, that's a big, not a big deal. But if I'm going to stand here and say I'm the son of God, smart people like you would say, yeah, show me some identification, right? Jesus, the son of God, his identification were the miracles, the healings, the things that he did. This was the proof that he was who he said he was. But why is that so important? Why is that critical? Notice what it says. He did that so that you could believe, and by believing, you could have life in his name. The truth of who Jesus is is so critical that within that understanding is the ability for you to know life, for you to have eternal life, for you to have hope, is knowing that Jesus is who he said he is and believing in him for who he said to be. One of our favorite verses, John 3, 16, you remember what it said? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John would go on to say in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4 and 5, he says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Chapter 5, who is he that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the importance of this question. Who is Jesus to you? Ah, he's a great guy. Or is he a dead guy that's not really relevant to my... When you understand that he is the Messiah, the one God sent, 
the Son of God come into this world, and you put your faith, your trust, your belief in him, you turn from your life, you repent, and you turn to follow him, that's when you recognize what Jesus is saying. By believing in me, you have eternal life. Then you have right. This is, this is the question we've got to get right. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the anointed, the, the Son of God. And through belief in him, you have life. So this morning, I want us just to kind of imagine Jesus looking you square in the face. Right, right now, just imagine yourself looking in whatever picture of Jesus you, you, you have imagined, looking at you and saying, so now who do you say I am? Who, who am I to you? As you think about that answer you wrote down earlier, maybe one that's been mulling around in your head, let me, let me point out a couple of things that I know from this story we have to understand about this, this question, the answer. And there is only one right answer. He is who he said that he is. We, we get that, right? I mean, he's got names, Jesus, Emmanuel. We, but truthfully, he is the one God sent, his son he sent to save the world from their sins. So with that correct answer in mind, here's something you've got to know. That correct answer must be pers- personal. This is an answer you have to answer for yourself. It's an answer that you, that it's a realization, a commitment. One person put it this way, and I want you to think about this. God has no grandkids. I feel sorry for him for that reason, because I love my grandkids, but that's a whole other story. But here's the point. It doesn't mean, you know, God uses us to point people to him. But the only way that you come to a relationship with Christ is when you personally, before him, realize your need and you receive Jesus as your Savior. He has children that are born because of their... So it's not because you've been born in church or you've come to church all your life or you're a religious person or grandma took you to church or you, you've heard this all your life. and It, it, it has nothing to do with, with all of those things. It, it's about a personal confrontation with the living Savior who says... I gave my life for you, and you receive him. It's a personal decision, a personal relationship. And it's not based on just information. You say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Sure, I'll, I'll take it. I believe in Jesus. It's, it's not just believing that it happened. It's that personal recognition that he came and he died and he was anointed and he was sent for me because I'm a sinner, and I recognize that, and I personally stand before him, and there's this, this personal confrontation with the Savior. It's a personal. It must be a personal answer. At some point, all of us need to come to, to saying what Martha did in John eleven twenty seven. 27. I love what her response. She said to Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Has there been a day when you did that? When, when you recognized, Jesus, I get it. You are the Messiah. You came for me. You came in this world for my sins. I recognize who you are, and I turn my life to you. That's a personal answer. But here's one thing I want to leave us with, and that's what I find in the rest of this verse. And that is that the correct answer to this question will be powerful. This isn't the trivia answer. Okay, who is Jesus for 500, right? That's not, it's not what we're looking at. It's not the, the answer that we, we just get or that we've heard. It's an answer that will change our lives. Notice how he goes on to say in the next verse, verse 18, Jesus said, and I tell you, 
Peter after he blessed him for this answer. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And let's stop there and think about it. What he's talking about, this rock. Remember where he's at, Caesarea Philippi. He's looking up into the mountains, the rocks where all these false gods are. And, and they're basing their religion on the rocks of this mountain. And he said, but Peter, get this. You're, the rock that I'm going to build is this confession you just made. The confession that I am the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, based on that rock of truth. He said, based on that, upon this rock, I will build my church. And look at this next phrase. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's talking about a powerful thing. This is the first time in the New Testament the word church is used. The word assembly is used for, the, for God's call of his people. It's his first time, and Jesus is saying, because of what of this confession, Peter, that, that you're making, that I am the Christ, the anointed, the Son of God. Based on that, that rock, you are the Messiah. He says, because of that, this church that I am building, which is all of us as God's people who have accepted him, we're followers, his church, this rock is building this church. And he said, upon that rock, I will build my church and the gates of, remember where he's standing. Man, Jesus, you're awesome. This is just cool. He's standing in the middle of all of these false gods, where, where they say the gates of Hades, and he said, even the gates of the realms of death cannot overcome it. What he's telling us is very, very simple. It, it, it's not just, a, you know, sometimes I've, I've thought about this as kind of the idea is we storm the gates, right? We're storming the gates of hell. But the truth is the gates of Hades is literally the gates of death, the, gate, the power that death has on us. And what he's saying is this, listen, church, Within you, within this confession, within knowing Christ as your Savior, death has no power over you. Death has no power. Death cannot overcome. So no matter how many, of, how many people come and go, followers of Christ, death has no power. Death cannot overcome us. The power of the gates of hell, as those people were in fear, thinking of what the gates of hell and something's going to reach out. And he says, don't worry about that. Because whether you die of natural causes or even if Caesar takes your life, so what? As Paul said it, for me to live is Christ to die. Well, boy, that's better yet. You can't threaten a child of God with death. You can't threaten God's church with death. Nothing, the power of death can't hurt us because, and if you go down just the next verse, in verse 21, Jesus is going to give a prophecy, and he said, from that time Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must be killed. He's actually telling them, I'm going to die, and then what? And I'm going to be raised the third day to life. He's saying, listen, guys, here's the point. Why death can't overcome you is because in a matter of a few days, I'm going to kick death right in the face. It's going to think it has me, and for three days it's going to rejoice. But at the end of those three days, I'm going to come out, and I have destroyed and overcome all of death. So church, get this. The power of the confession of who Jesus is is this. Death has no power over us because of Jesus Christ and because of our relationship with him. No power whatsoever based on the fact of who Jesus is. But this is the point that that I personally am applying this week. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I know that when I die, it's not a deal. I'm already, as soon as it's done, I'm there. I get that. But am I living my life right now as if I believe that? Paul said it this way. 
He said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, you might recognize some of you this verse. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now notice these next phrases. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, I not only am not afraid to die, Paul said, I live each day with the acknowledgement, the realization that within me lives the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit living in me. And so I, I can face each day and each trouble and each trial and each stress and each fear. And I can face whatever I'm going. And, and I, it's real. They're real problems. They're real issues. But I can face them knowing that I believe in the Son of God, the risen Savior. And I believe that he's living inside of me. And so based on that fact, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for the reason I had to ask that is that a couple times this week, boy, I wasn't living that way. And I got to some points and I'm thinking, boy, I just, this life just real stinks. I'll just put it that way. And God kind of said, okay, dude, listen to this. You believe that Jesus is the son of the living God. Yes, I do. You believe if you were to die right now, you'd go to heaven. Yes, I do. So if that is true, why are you living like you're defeated? Why are you living like the world and, and all the junk has got in control? The son of the living God, through his spirit, lives in me. And I need to live each day like that's true. So, so as we wrap this up, let's take it back to the setting and let's just imagine. Let's just imagine that we're walking along the streets with Jesus but we're looking at some modern kind of accessory of Philippi, right? We're looking at our world around us and Jesus is pointing out some of the things in our world, whether it be fear or stress or evil and the things around us and our culture just that doesn't believe in God. And they're offering all these things that what you really need is to be happy and what you really need is this if you want contentment. What you really need and, and what, all of that stuff is sitting right next to the gates of Hades, right? It has no purpose. It has no hope. There's nothing. And Jesus is, we're walking with Jesus beside, the, beside all these things and all this that we're seeing and he's reminding us of, of, of where we're living and, where, and all of these, and then he stops and he says, okay, I got a jeopardy, jeopardy for you. The answer is Messiah, the son of the living God. The question is, who do you say I am? How do you answer that question? For some of you this morning, it would be coming to the realization that I'm a sinner and Jesus came to give me life and I want to receive his gift of salvation today. Personally, me and God come out of here a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. Some of us as Christians would have to say, and God, I want to live, walk this, this path this week. And I know trouble's coming. I'm right in the middle of some of it, but I'm going to walk this week as if I'm a child of the son of the living God. And maybe for some, it's just to walk into a realm of darkness and to invite someone else, point them to the same hope that I have and say, do you, do you know what Jesus did for me? Can, can I introduce you to my friend, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Would you bow your heads with me, please? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed,
want to take a moment and consider what God has said to us today. And once again, ask the question and ask you to personalize it. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he your Savior? Has he forgiven you? Is he the Son of God that, that came and gave his life for you and, and you recognize that? Is he, do you know him and, and eternal life through him? If not, today. Would you call out to him right from where you're seated or in a moment we pray, come and let us pray with you and just say, God, I recognize that you are the true son of God and I need you to save me, to forgive me. Or maybe as a Christian, God's just encouraging you as child, son, daughter of mine, within you is the power to live your life because the son of the living God lives in you. Father, help us today to understand this truth and to apply this truth. And Father, I'm praying that if there's one person in this audience who's today without, without salvation, without a knowledge of you as their Lord and Savior, today would you save them. And for Christians across this room who just needed the reminder that that, that powerful Son of God is living within us, and maybe even a person in our life who we can tell and point to you. God, give us that courage and that desire to show them that you are who you say you are. 